you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're continuing our uh, series on Habakkuk. And uh, the title I gave for the series is basically Struggling with God's Justice. And early on in the book, it's struggling with what seems to be a lack of justice. And uh, we can often struggle with that. Um, seeing that the world is filled with sin and iniquity and wondering when is God going to finally bring some justice. Uh, but we can also struggle with the reality of justice. That when it actually does come, uh, there are times where it doesn't feel just to us and we have to trust God that it actually is just. And uh, this is going to be one of those passages, I think, that we're perhaps going to struggle with. Uh, this is an oracle of woe, and um, to us, it, sound, it may sound harsh. It's not, but that requires faith <laughs> for us to understand. Uh, so before we uh, get all into that, let's read from uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. This is a longer sort of chunk that we have today, but it is connected to what we've already been reading in chapter 2. Okay, it's a continuation of the same oracle that, or vision that Habakkuk was supposed to write down. Shall not all these take up their rants against him, or their taunt rather, against him, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awaken who will make you terrible, then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence on the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and then make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, from the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! 
to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Heavenly Father, graciously open your holy and eternal word to us poor people and establish us in the knowledge of your will and direct all who err in your word to the right way again so that we may live according to your divine pleasure. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a favorite Western. That favorite Western, unlike Mark McCurdy's, who's open range. You can't get him to stop talking about that movie. Mine is Tombstone. I think it's largely that the dynamic that exists between Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. But it's the story. Not sure how much is true and how much is Hollywood made up stuff. Uh, but the Earp brothers deciding to retire from their careers as law enforcement, go to the town of Tombstone, Arizona, to seek out a new life of recreation. They want to gamble the rest of their lives away, and so they and their wives come to Arizona. It does not take long for them to discover that Tombstone is ruled by that version of organized crime called the Cowboys, led by Curly Bill Brocious. This uh, group of uh, cowboys controls the town in part because they've bought the sheriff and the mayor. And so their violence and greed kind of run roughshod over the entire town. And there are the Earps. It's a story that takes place not just in Tombstone, Arizona, in a screenwriter's mind, but it's one that has taken place in numerous cities around the world. The one that takes place even to this day in many places where the average person lives in an environment that is controlled by violent oppressors. It's reminiscent of these people that we see in the middle of uh, verse 4 there uh, in chapter 2. When, just to remind you, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. And as we, we look at these verses from 6 to 20, I want us to keep that passage in mind because this is a further description of what it looks like to be puffed up and unrighteous. Those who refuse to believe the good news of the gospel those who refuse to submit themselves to God's righteous standard. And so if we see this in light of what we saw in verse 4, we'll recognize that it's not simply about one particular person and that we must identify who that one particular person is. It's not about one particular nation and therefore it behooves us to find out that one particular nation because therefore if we identify who that person is, it's irrelevant to everyone else. But really, functioning within this, it expands far beyond the likely suspects. 
It goes beyond Jehoiakim, the the king of Judah. It goes beyond Nebuchadnezzar, who is God's instrument to judge Jehoiakim. It goes beyond Cyrus, who was the instrument to judge Babylon. It goes to all unbelievers. Similarly, it goes beyond Judah, who was judged by Babylon, and Babylon, who was judged by the, the Medes and the Persians, and so forth to go to all nations because all people and all nations have a profound problem with sin. This is, as I mentioned earlier, an oracle of woe. We know this simply from the fact that woe is pronounced five times in this and follows the typical oracle of woe pattern of here is the sin and here's what's going to happen. And in a sense, we're going to follow this by talking about first the sin and then what's going to happen. But these woes, those sins that are mentioned, characterize those puffed up people who are pursuing unrighteousness. Uh, These are people, it starts off, and we're going to do this briefly, so don't worry, it's not going to be like fine detail that takes us all day. Uh, Okay, But we see that they're heaping up that which is not their own. They're gathering up the resources that other people have accumulated for themselves. And as we think about the original context, usually what happened is these predator nations, the larger, stronger nation on the block, someone like Babylon would exact tribute out of the weaker nations. And so they're taking their resources first by tribute. And then if you rebel against that larger nation, they conquer you and take all your stuff. And that is exactly what Babylon would do. They would leave nothing untouched. If it seemed to be of value, they would stick it in a cart and bring it back to Babylon to satisfy their own thirst for goods. But we can see this similarly in heaping up what is not your own through loans. And we see that through that word pledges. That can also refer to the pledges for loans. And it's not hard to think about the predatory loans that are, that are given with credit cards uh, asking for 20% interest when the prime lending rate is four. Or of those, uh, you know, title loan companies and things like that, which prey upon the needs of people and charge extravagant rates, legalized loan sharking in many senses of the term. We see that this is back to kind of the original context. We see that this was something that was a problem within Judah itself. We see in Micah chapter 3, Hear this, you heads of the house of Judah and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And so they're heaping up that which is not their own. They're taking the resources of other nations and they're doing it through bloodshed and violence. It's as if things have returned to the the state of affairs prior to the flood. These are the words that are used as well in Genesis chapter 6 that we saw as well in the first chapter and uh, Habakkuk's complaint against the Lord about what was going on in Judah. The violence that was being used, not just for its own sake, but for the sake of gaining the goods 
of other people. These predator people and groups and nations have plundered many through their bloodshed and violence. They did this hoping to um, build their houses or dynasties from unrighteous gain and to make them untouchable. And there's that image of the nest that is there. Kind of, you know, right now here in Arizona, we mentioned in Sunday school uh, that with all the, the leaves dropped off the trees, you can see where all the nests are. Okay, kind of cool. And I don't know why the, the morning doves build nests in my garage instead of those trees. Okay, yes, they've, they're plaguing me again. The nest is a place of general safety for the bird, seemingly untouchable from, by most of its enemies. And that is exactly what the wicked do. They try to establish their own forms of nests. Sometimes they're called penthouses with exclusive elevators and uh, bodyguards. Or sometimes they buy mansions. But the idea is the same. is They're utilizing the wealth that they take from others to make themselves unassailable. We see that in many ways, this is an exegesis, this is an expansion over what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. The love of money produces the use of violence and oppression to gain the money that is sought. They're building their towns and their cities, another woe says, with blood or violence and iniquity. They're stealing the wealth of others. We see this was true in the story uh, in Tombstone. That's what the cowboys were doing, using violence and sin to take the wealth of others for themselves. As if that's not bad enough, there's another woe that's sort of added in here. We see that they are seducing others to partake of their sin and then exploiting them. Now, it's interesting. Is this something that they're literally doing? You know, that they're literally getting people drunk and exposing them? Or is this sort of a figurative thing of uh, inviting them to participate in their sin and then they kind of turn around and get this nation that had been helpful to them? We're not too sure. But it does seem to be another one of these references to the early parts of Genesis where, unfortunately, Noah got drunk, Noah got naked, and then something happened. Not sure exactly what that was. But there is a sense of shame and exposure that is connected to it. And so they're, in some way, shaming and exposing others by their actions. All of this sort of culminates with the final woe, which is upon the sin of idolatry. That they were trusting in idols, these lifeless and unresponsible things that they carved out of wood or stone, the things that they may have fabricated through metal or covered with metal. They're trusting in these lifeless things to give them life, and they're willing to kill for them. 
And right there is, the, is a rendition of Marduk, who was the primary god of Babylon. And so he's the god that they were going out and conquering other nations to serve. Okay? It's a predatory form of God, uh, type of god. And the Babylons were all into Marduk and his service. But then a, a shift happened, and we're going to talk a bit more about this later, where uh, I can't remember what order I put these in. What's the next one? Nope. Oh, well, I'll go back to that idea later. Uh, one of the other gods that they ended up serving later on in the Neo-Babylonian Empire was an old god from Ur, Sin, or the moon god. We'll get back to that. It's like the days of Noah have returned, where sin is rampant and uncontrollable, where God has essentially given nations and people up to their sin. Now, as we ponder this, we recognize that if we connect it back to that idea of being puffed up, pride thinks, and I'll, per, I'll personalize this, so don't think I actually think this, please, but pride thinks that I deserve your stuff more than you do. I have a more I have a greater need for your resources than you do, so I am justified in taking your stuff without your permission or um, your permission um, gained through manipulation or violence. Okay? Pride thinks that my life matters more than your life matters. Pride thinks that my pleasure matters more than your pleasure or dignity matter. That's the mindset that is behind all of these sins that we see taking place uh, through this oracle of woe. Now, one of the benefits of reading history, world history, is that you recognize or, or you should quickly realize that all nations have been marred by racism or prejudice, oppression, sexual exploitation, idolatry, and greed. In other words, ultimately, there's, there's no group of people, there's no nation that holds the moral high ground. They may act like they do at times, but ultimately, they don't. Part of how we should process this, I think C.S. Lewis is helpful in his book, The Four Loves. He talks about the love of place and people. Another phrase that he uses is love of country. And he believes that we should have a love of place, a love of people. It's good to have a love of country. That... The problem is, is when we make an idol of our place and people. Okay, now we move over here to this extreme. Where we idolize our place and people, we cannot recognize the faults and foibles of our place and people. We pretend that they're perfect. 
Okay? We demonize, well, actually, he talks about how that has overcome that form of nationalism or love of place is overcome by, like, a, basically a demonic sort of spirit that he saw taking place in Nazi Germany, where our people, our place, matter more than everyone else's people in place. Now, because we're human beings, not, not only is there an extreme on that side, there's an extreme on this side. Where it's, it's hard to really come up with a word for it, but it's the, it's the, the negative of the idealization of our country such that all it is is wrong and corrupt where there's a refusal to accept any virtue or good that has ever been done in the name uh, of that country, and, and therefore this country is all bad. And, and I see some Christians who talk about this country and think that because of abortion, this is the worst country that ever existed. And that God's judgment upon this country is the worst of any other country that's ever going to be judged by God, as if no other country also struggled with abortion. That view is just as wrong as this view. And so as Christians, we are called to love our country because we're dual citizens. We have a, we have a citizenship on earth as well as our heavenly citizenship. And because we love our country, we can recognize both, just as hopefully we as parents do, the strengths of our country and the weaknesses and failings of our country, as opposed to thinking we can only hold on to one or the other. This is going to matter, I think. We do need to be honest. We don't need to be threatened by the, the idea or the notion that our country has committed grievous sins in the past. But nor should that be the only thing we mention about our country. There have been great things that our country has done in the past as well as in the present. And so if we keep that mindset of, of love of country, we can recognize that we're in the same plane as the other countries that these woes don't just apply to other nations, but also are critical of aspects of our nation. Does that make any sense? <laughs> All right. Some of you nodded. I didn't see any shaking heads. <laughs> Maybe I missed them because I didn't want to see them. I don't know. As we think about unrighteous nations, well, there is a great temptation to think that applies to everywhere but where I live. Okay? That's the bottom line. And that sin applies to everyone except me. And I think part of what is going on here in Habakkuk is to strip us from that foolish notion to reveal to us that we too are part, often part of the problem. 
And so all nations are filled with puffed up and unrighteous believers. But what, I have a second question as I look through this text. What's going to happen to the puffed up and unrighteous ones who refuse to believe the gospel? And that really is the second part of that oracle of woe. First is the sin and then is the punishment. And what we see that throughout the five woes is that there's going to be this pattern of what's called judicial irony. In other words, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6. The sins that are committed by a person or group are then committed against them, which is hard to hear at times. But we see this in phrases like, will not your debtors suddenly arise against you. Because you have plundered, they will plunder you. What you have done is going to be done to you. The plunderer will, in fact, be plundered. And if we look historically, we see that Jehoiakim was plundering his people for his own benefit. And then here comes Babylon who plunders for his benefit. And I think, uh, I think that was when I wanted the map. Okay. So we've got good, good old Judah down here. Jehoiakim is oppressing his people, seemingly uh, oblivious to the world that's going on around him. Uh, but then soon we're going to have the Chaldeans coming out of Ur, moving into Assyria. There's Carchemish, if we remember the great battle against the Egyptians. And now that the Egyptians are done, Babylon is going to move south. And it's going to conquer Judah. Jehoiakim, who plundered, is about to be plundered by Babylon. But that's not the end of it, because you see, uh, there's good old Babylon, but if we look onto the far right over there, we have all that green that stretches uh, to the east and to the north of Babylon that is represented by the Median Empire and good old Persia a little bit farther south. Those are going to join, and they're eventually going to conquer the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Of course, they're not content with all of that, you see, because they decide that they're going to want to plunder the Greek states, which are really over here on the, the uh, upper left-hand corner and beyond. And who topples the Persian Empire? The Greeks. <laughs> they gather together finally under Alexander the Great and end up overthrowing the Persian Empire and trying to invade India. And so it goes on. The plunderer becomes plundered. Rome, who plundered so many nations, would be plundered by the various Germanic tribes, a.k.a. the barbarians. That's how it works. Because God is executing justice upon predator nations. Another image that is here is that the very house that they thought was safe that safe nest is going to begin to cry out against them for the bloodshed. And there's this sort of imagery of one part of the house calling out and another part of the house responding, sort of an antiphonal cry about the injustice and the violence that is done in order to, to form and sustain that house. 
It's something akin to the blood of Abel which cried from the ground after uh, Cain had murdered him. We recognize from Genesis 9 that for lifeblood, God requires a reckoning from beast and from man. He will require it. And so he's bringing that bill to payment. We see Nebuchadnezzar who conquers the, the, most of the known world, not all of it, as we saw from our map, but we see that he conquers. He dies. His son, evil Merodach, uh, becomes king, but is only king for two years because what happens is that he's murdered by his brother-in-law, also no, uh, known as Nergal uh, Shirazer. Okay? So now his house... So in other words... Nebuchadnezzar's house was plundered by political turmoil. His son, after him, reigns for only a few months. Him, he was named Labishai Marduk, and he was murdered after about six months as king. He was replaced by the usurper, Nabonidus, who decided he'd After he conquers, he decides he doesn't really want to rule. He wants to build things, not destroy things. And so he makes Belshazzar, whom we've seen before in Daniel, to be his co-regent. His son reigns with him, and his son is in charge of the army. And he and his son were the ones who were in charge when the Medes and the Persians finally came to plunder them. And so it goes. We see as well this uh, poetic, uh, sorry, this um, judicial irony taking place. Poetic justice is another term for it. Um, And that the one who exposes others to shame will himself be exposed for all to see. Uh, You made those nations drink the cup of your wrath. Well, now you're going to drink the cup of wrath. We see as well, again, it culminates in the sin of idolatry, and mentions the fact that the idolater is going to become as lifeless as the images of wood, metal, and stone that he worships. This is an application of what we see in Psalm 115. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And so uh, these people and nations were trusting in these silent idols, and now they become silent And they become lifeless. They become as silent before his idols as they are intended to be before Yahweh in his holy temple. In other words, they have no excuse. They have no right to complain. They're they're silenced in that way. They're not silenced in awe. And that's what's going on really in Psalm 46 when we see this because it's about the turmoil of the nations in Psalm 46 just like this. And the silence is the fact that they cannot respond to the charges and the execution of justice. Be still and know that I am the Lord. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, as it says there. And here, it's a similar context, similar thing. They have no grounds to complain. And so they're silent. As silent as these false gods 
that they've worshipped. John Newton speaks to this when he says that the Christian knows he has no right to complain of anything first because he's a sinner. And he has no reason, okay, no right, now no reason, because he is sure that the Lord does all things well. And that's how the nations are also going to be silent. They'll realize they're guilty, and they realize that God is right in bringing justice upon them. And so this oracle serves as a great warning for all who sin. And I want us to remember that we were also among those who sinned. Uh, Maybe you weren't a predator, but that doesn't mean that you're guiltless. And your sin, just like the sin of these people, has an accounting, a reckoning, a balance. But we see a great deal of judicial irony when God works some of this out. Because he does a lot of this in the the sending of Jesus, his son. Jesus, his shed blood, speaks. But we see from Hebrews 12 that it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel's did. Abel's spoke condemnation to Cain. But Jesus' blood speaks life to those who are covered in it, sprinkled by it, because they're pardoned and forgiven. The blood of Jesus, which was shed because of hatred and violence, actually produces grace for those upon whom it covers. We see as well, tying into this text, that cup of God's wrath, well, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that we who deserve the wrath can instead drink the cup of God's blessing. We see as well the reality that the righteous one suffered for the unrighteous ones in order to make them righteous by faith. And so the gospel really is, in many ways, the supreme example of judicial irony. So that those who don't repent and believe receive what they've done to others. That's what the puffed up will receive because of their sin, unless they repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So... With this whole message, this oracle of sin and judgment, do, do, we, uh, do we have something to look forward to here? I mean, is there something positive that can be said besides the fact that Jesus um, takes the wrath that we have earned? Well, we see that there is some hope in here that the righteous who live by faith don't weary themselves for nothing in the long term. We recognize that what the Scripture says here, that the peoples labor merely for fire. Imagine that for a second. What does it mean to labor for fire? Fire is there and gone. And it consumes everything around it. I had some old bills, didn't go into my taxes, 
burned them up yesterday. There and gone. We, when we work for flame or fire, we work for things that are gone, used up, no lasting value, day to day. And we have to remember that we don't simply work for that, that there's something greater that is going on. And we recognize what God says to Habakkuk, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What's interesting is that it's a combination of Numbers 14 and Isaiah 11. Because in one, it says the earth will be filled with the glory of God, and the other, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And here, it's the knowledge of the glory of God. The earth, as Habakkuk spoke, wasn't filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so this is a future thing that's going to take place. There's, people are going to know and glorify the Lord precisely for His justice and His mercy. And the idea that the earth is filled with this means that there's going to be, everyone's going to know. There's going to be a time when eventually everyone will know of God's glory and God will be glorified in that justice. But it's the second part of that phrase, that, that line there, uh, that a Thursday, I, I didn't notice it on Tuesday when I started working on this, and no one ever addressed this, but it's what an interesting phrase, and it's used here as well as in the Isaiah passage that was read this morning, as the waters cover the sea. How do waters cover a sea? Well, if we think about the Hebrew uh, poetry and the way that the parallelism is an expansion, we see that, again, it's comparing the knowledge filling the earth to the waters covering the sea. And so, waters fill a sea. There's land under that there water. Okay? And we call that there land as well sea. Um, you know, if you can go to the Salton Sea and there's not a whole lot of sea to see, but it's the land. And the waters fill it. The waters fill the seas in that similar way, the knowledge of the glory of God are going to fill the earth. They're going to cover it so that we no longer see the sin, the violence, the oppression, and exploitation that we currently see now. The violence and oppression will be concealed as God's knowledge uh, and glory uh, descend in the person of Jesus Christ when He returns. Part of the irony that I didn't mention that 
that judicial irony is that Jesus died upon the cross and it seemed that he had been defeated and yet in that act he, as it says in Colossians 2, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so Jesus seemingly defeated upon the cross, is risen and he reigns and he's going to come again with justice, which brings us back to Tombstone. After the OK Corral, things do not go well for the Earp brothers because one of them is killed and the other one is maimed in gunfights. And they are run out of town by the cowboys. And it seems like they've been defeated. It seems like the cowboys have won. They're able to continue their tyranny upon Tombstone. And so here you have this scene where two of the cowboys are at the train station as you see his brother and he calls, and uh, Ike Clanton calls out to, uh, to Wyatt's wife, Maddie, where's Wyatt? Because he wants to make sure that their tails are right between their legs and they're getting out of town and they're not ever coming back. And that's when from behind, Wyatt responds with gunfire. And the other cowboy falls dead to the ground and there is Ike Clanton, ever the coward, bowing down before Wyatt Earp and this takes place, this dialogue takes place. Well now, Clanton... You've called down the thunder, and now you've got it. You see that, as he points to what's on his belt. It says, United States Marshal. The cowboys are finished, you understand me? You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. Hell's coming with me. Wyatt Earp was an appointed magistrate who was bringing justice. And it wasn't going to be clean and neat and pretty. But it reminds me of the return of Jesus. The very thing I long for. The very thing that needs to happen. Jesus is not coming the second time like some, uh, you know, old hippie. Jesus is coming as the Messiah. He's got authority. And when he comes, he's bringing hell with them, he's bringing justice. He's not going to be weak. The time for repentance would be done. And all of the nations will be, will be bowing down before him just like Ike Clanton does, Wyatt, and saying, he is Lord and I was wrong. But they're not going to be glad that he's Lord. But this text reminds me that Jesus returns to fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory in a way that I cannot put together in my head, but it's true and gives me hope. And so it doesn't look like Jesus reigns right now. 
It looks as though our world continues to fall apart. Greed, oppression, violence, exploitation, trafficking, and other sins fill the nations and fill this nation where we live. But you continue to declare oracles of judgment upon the wicked. We're grateful for those who repent and entrust themselves to Jesus who drank the cup of woe for sinners. But we also long for the day when all the puffed up and wicked will be brought to their knees before King Jesus as he brings justice upon the unjust. And in light of that, we need to pray. Father, there's good news in there and there's hard news in there. Until we deal with the hard news, the good news really isn't good. Until we recognize the the pride and the love of money and all of the sins that it produces in our own lives, um, we're under those woes. And it's not until we see uh, this Jesus who turns everything upside down and love Him, um, that we remain under that condemnation. But because of Him, when we love Him, we trust Him, we receive all of the, the benefits, and He becomes our defender, our protector, our friend, not our enemy. So, Father, sustain us with that. Call us to deeper faith and repentance. Help us to rest in that Jesus that this text helps us to see a little more clearly. A Jesus who's that righteous and that merciful. It's in his name we pray. Amen.